Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of Veritalk, podcasting the life of the mind from the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. I'm Nicholas Nardini and I'm a PhD student in English. Hi, I'm Laura Janti and I'm a PhD student in physics. And we'll be your hosts for this installment. This week we're discussing quantitative wizardry with a statistician who worked with President Obama's presidential campaign and about his own work crunching numbers to improve everything from anti-smoking campaigns to organ donation networks. A little bit later, we'll be discussing Sweden's effort to free its children from the shackles of gender. According to the Electoral College and the popular vote, Barack Obama was the winner of this year's presidential election. An even bigger winner, though, may have been superstar statistician Nate Silver, who this time around correctly predicted the presidential pick of all 50 states. Silver's success has brought attention to the increasing influence of predictive modeling in American elections, where it is now practically routine for campaigns to work closely with statisticians to maximize their efforts. One such statistician is Panos Toulis, a PhD student here at Harvard who has flown into Obama HQ to assist in the final week of the campaign. Panos, welcome to Veritalk. Hi. Why don't you begin by telling us just how exactly you became involved with the Obama campaign? Yeah, sure. Uh, it was first of all, it was completely uh, unexpected. So before the uh, last week of the the elections, I got an email saying, you know, uh, you can you want to go to Chicago to to be the Obama analytics team. So it turns out that this uh, team um, wanted to do experiments. So basically, they, they they wanted to know what what works and what not, and uh, for two reasons. So first one was to give the final push during the the final week, and also know what what works and what not for for next elections, basically. So I was there for, for to do this kind of experiment. Okay, so Nate Silver and his 538 blog, they obviously, they had a prediction far before the first week. But Obama's bringing you in as a statistician during that that final week, right? So is this a case of statistician versus statistician, spy versus spy? Um, not really. Uh, actually, we're doing different things. Uh, so Silver and other uh, statisticians that do the same thing are like working this poll aggregation kind of uh, uh, business, which is basically we take different polls and we try to figure out how we can combine them in order to, to get like a better estimate. And this is like what we call in statistics like meta-analysis type of things where uh, they've been around for, 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 for some time. And what's really interesting for, for, for these guys, for Nate Silver, for example, it's not like the presidential election, but it's, it's their accuracy in um, primaries, for example, which are, more, which are harder to, to, to predict. On the other hand, we have, we have, in our group, we have statisticians that try to figure out what's uh, better ways to do social mobilization, right? So how can we increase voter turnout? How we can do these kind of things. So, so a poll is like a snapshot at a specific time, right? Uh, on the other hand, we try to do to change this thing. We try to change the snapshot, so it's like complementary in some sense, like what we are trying to do. So, if I understand it, your role was not to figure out how to change it, but to test whether or not the the methods they had already established were yes, working. Yes, yes. My specific role was to figure out what exactly, like what works and how, like measure the effectiveness of the methods that uh, the analytics team was using. So what were some of the methods that they were using? So one method was Facebook. Uh, and uh, I think that we're going to see a lot of uh, this stuff like in the, in the next elections. So for example, we, you had like Facebook application users, right? That, so Obama had like one million application users. And the campaign would like to, would send these people like messages to share with friends and so on and so forth. So they're trying to do this social mobilization, this voter mobilization through Facebook messages. Hmm. So how would you test whether or not that was working? So, for example, you would have two groups of people, right? And you would say, okay, what if five friends send you a message? And what, what if 
20 friends send you a message. Is there a difference? Is there, does this increase your likelihood to, to go out and vote? Mm. So these are interesting like, questions that we were trying to answer. Does that mean that you took some potential voters and didn't apply these methods and maybe risked losing their, their, their vote that's, that's, in order to... Did you, have a, did you have a control group, basically? Yes, that was exactly the crux of the, of the problem there. So it was like this interesting exploration, exploitation kind of trade-off. So the campaign people don't like experiments because there are many opportunity costs, right? At the same time, they want to know what works and what not. Right, so they would say, okay, this is our campaign, this is our, our like optimized thing, and on top of that, you can just add some targeted messages, or you can remove some of them if you want to put them in control, but make sure this is balanced, that you, you, you just don't remove more than you just add back in. So mm -hmm. it was not a clean experiment, but it was like the best we can do under this. Hmm. So you have to do situations. the, you're in the very awkward position of trying to run a balanced experiment, within a campaign, which is by definition an unbalanced endeavor, yes, right? Yes, exactly, yeah. So you're part of a, a narrative that we're hearing increasingly surrounding American elections, which is that um, elections are becoming more data-driven uh, instead of relying on just hunches and what people used to call political intuition. We're crunching the numbers, right? We're doing the work of empirically figuring out what works. And according to the popular narrative that we usually hear, uh, the political old guard is really disturbed by this, right? The old political grunts, you know, who were there with uh, Goldwater or whatever, uh, are angry that, that, that their expertise is being upstaged by hot young statisticians like yourself. Did you encounter any of these disgruntled, any of this disgruntled old guard at Obama HQ? Uh, not at all. Like, no? these people, like, were really into it. Uh, they, the effort they put into this was impressive. It was very data-driven from, I think, from day zero. And I don't know what, 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 what's, the, what's the case with uh, other parties, if uh, actually there's this kind of uh, tension that you described. Mm -hmm. But um, in, the, in, the, in the Obama campaign, it was, it was very data-driven kind of uh, effort. So there was no kind of antagonism within the campaign. Let's say in the next election someone wants to try to emulate what Obama did, yeah. um, assuming that um, it was successful, which I hope you'll tell us about later. Would the main limitation be on the data collection or on the analysis of the data? What's the, what's the really difficult part of, of doing this? It's, uh, it's both. It's always both. The, the hardest part that, that, that campaigns try to do is figure out which people like, are likely to support you and unlikely to turn out to vote. These are like the, what they're trying to do, basically. So this has to do, you know, how you, in order to, to figure out this thing, right, you need to have proper data collected, like age, like uh, demographics, all this kind of data uh, to be collected properly. And also you need uh, modeling in order to figure out actually how to target your resources, how to use your resources more efficiently in order to, to target these people. Hmm. Are you familiar with Sasha Eisenberg's uh, recent book, The um the Victory Lab? Uh, no. Okay, so I think, so the, it's, it's a book basically about this new statistical turn in elections, and the argument is basically that the business of elections used to be about persuasion, right? It, were, it was psychologists and PR people, and it was figuring out how to craft a message to appeal to voters. Uh, the argument of Sasha Eisenberg's book is that the game has now shifted, and it's not about persuasion anymore. It's about figuring out whom you've already persuaded and basically getting them to vote. It's more about getting out the vote than about getting people to change their vote. Is that your experience of the campaign? Uh, it's, uh, I think it, it depends. It depends on the, on the phase of the campaign. At least for the Obama campaign, they, they will have persuasion goals as well. Uh, but this fade out as you go towards the end of the elections because it's really hard to persuade people 
So at the end of the election, it's just get out the vote hmm. uh, efforts. Hmm. But I think in the early uh, stages, which I was not there to, to know for sure, but I'm pretty sure that they, they had persuasion goals, like having conversers like other people go there and try to persuade. Okay, so there's still work to there's, do it's, yeah, for, the, for the PR men, for yeah. the psychologists. Yeah. And um, there, was a, there was an article in the New York Times recently about the academic dream team that Obama assembled around his campaign, uh, made up not just of statisticians, but also of psychologists and um did you did did you encounter this this dream team? Were you working with psychologists, or were you pretty much by yourself with the statisticians? Uh, to be honest, I didn't. Uh, I'm pretty sure there was a lot of work in this, uh, you know, a lot of help from from this kind of disciplines, because the setup I, I I found out there was pretty impressive in terms of you know how they will target people, how they will you know uh, approach the problem, analyze it, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think what I saw was like the evidence of this type of work, not. Hmm. Uh, I didn't see it with my, uh, you know, with my own eyes, but I, 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 I could definitely sense that there was like something more than numbers there. So I'm curious, did you find, did your experiments find that these methods they were using were successful? Uh, we're still waiting. So uh, public voter records need some months to be public. We will be getting the results in a few months, and analysis okay. comes next. So to non-statisticians, I think there's something a little bit sinister about these kind of efforts, right? Something that seems to suggest that everything can be condensed to numbers, right? We are more predictable than we think we are, that the human essence of campaigns is going to uh, disappear under the crushing weight, right, of, of, of big data. As a statistician, can you say something to put my mind at rest? Yeah, you should be at rest because <laughs> what statistics can give you is just uh, one to maybe 3% like an increase in, in turnout or the elections. like. But I think there's no much in having a genuine kind of message to share, having a genuine candidate, an honest candidate. There's no way to replace this this kind of thing. And also, uh, statistics can help in having in giving power back to the people, right? To to having more grassroots movements, having this social mobilization again, and not having the elections being defined by consultant groups like mm. these super PACs and all these things. And I think this was. A bet that was uh, that uh, the Obama campaign won in the, in the last elections. Without living in a swing state myself, I, I get the impression that some of the huge amounts of money that are poured into things like negative ads, um, in the end, sort of cancel themselves out. You have to do it because your opponent is doing it, but maybe it doesn't actually bring up your numbers that much. Do you have the sense that if you find that these methods are successful in in the next election, both campaigns will do them, and do you think that it will it will sort of draw even again? Probably, yeah. Uh, it, uh, again, I think it's going to be who, who's going to be uh, a step ahead. Um, at, this, at this time, it was the Obama campaign was like a step ahead in the analytics kind of phase. But I think we're going to see a lot of um, more things in, in kind of positive ways, for example. And we're going to see social media take an even uh, bigger role in mm -hmm. these things. Not only about, you know, through emailing, through messaging, things like that. I think we're going to see much more kind of involved, much more like creative, innovative ways of engaging like voters into this, into, into campaigns. Interesting. So with the Obama campaign, you were working with one very particular type of network, right? A network of voters. But in your own work, you work with very different types of networks, right? Say a little bit about what you do when you're just a PhD student. Right. So yeah, when, I, when I'm a PhD student, I come up with models, right? We come up with ways to do experiments. And uh, this was this is why like the elections like was like a great uh, opportunity to get data. 
So in our research, we try to figure out uh, if you if you make like an intervention in a network, uh, like a policy change or election mess like messages through through some kind of an application like Facebook, right? So how uh, how people influence each other, how people interact with each other, and actually trying to design experiments to measure uh, this type of effects. With what sort of networks? So yeah, uh, one application has been uh, um, school networks where you have uh, so where you have children uh, and or students in high school, for example, uh, and they form like this these networks with each other based on uh, maybe gender, uh, age, and things like that. And uh, you want to figure out um, if a policy like like some an anti-smoking program has an effect, mm -hmm. and how this effect can be uh, measured in these little sub-networks, for example. And you work also with organ donation networks, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in organ donation, is the case where you have uh, a donor who is incompatible with a, uh, with a patient, right? And another donor who is also incompat incompatible with a patient uh, being able to share uh, kidneys, for example, mm -hmm. right? So you can in this kind in, in this kind of this kind of networks you're interested in maximizing the number of transplants you can make. But at the same time you're in, you're interested in, in, in establishing a mechanism that's going to have is going to incentivize hospitals to share these patient lists, hmm. right? Because a hospital you might think that a hospital if it has like a patient list it might do these exchanges within the hospital, right, and right. not share something in in a kind of nation, nationwide kind of. Uh, so you're trying exchange. to connect as many different organ donors who don't have compatible matches with each other as yeah, possible. Yeah, and at the same time incentivize hospitals to to share truthfully. Sounds um, a lot like game theory, right? It is game theory. It is game yeah, theory. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a background in that or is that uh, something? Yeah, yeah. I, I studied uh, computer science mm -hmm. uh, before switching to statistics and some of my work was in, in game theory. Wow. So what have you found in doing this study on donation? Have you found uh, any unique ways to motivate pe uh, hosp people or hospitals? Uh, we have proposed ways to do that. First of all, one of our main messages was that we needed to make uh, these kidney exchanges even more large scale, even more na nationwide. And we proved we, we had like a, a model that that says that that quantifies exactly what's the benefit of doing that. How many lives we expect to save if we do that? Because uh, for now we have, there is a nationwide kind of exchange, but there are also many regional uh, exchanges, and uh, there's a lot of discussion of making this even more large scale. And, uh, and also, at the same time, we have proposed a method to do uh, how this exchange can, can, can be made possible. And uh, we've shown that, basically we've shown uh, way, uh, uh, ways to do this that need to be avoided. Uh, ways where, you know, if you do like this, if you do, if you say you, you have like a, a large pool, right, of, of kidney transplants, uh, doing like a myopic kind of uh, matching can be harmful. So we show ways that this think can be harmful. Do you think that hospitals are listening to what you have to say? Um, I'm not sure if they listen to me, uh, but I think they're listening to the community in general. So there's been a lot of progress. So very recently was there was a chain of transplants. Uh, a chain is when you have like some altruistic donor donates the kidney and then the, the, recipient, the recipient's donor also donates a kidney and there's like a uh, kind of chain of transplants and like over three years 20 transplants were made possible in the course of time so there's been a lot of progress in that. So let me just wrap up by asking who's easier to work with organ donors or voters? I'm not sure both problems are like challenging mm -hmm. and uh, this is this is this is all I need. Uh, okay me. 
Good. Well, that about brings us to the second portion of our show, where we discuss lighter fare from outside the Academy. We affectionately call this portion of the show Fluff, and this week we'll be discussing Sweden, widely acknowledged as the vanguard of the human race, which has recently taken steps to attack gender inequality at its root in the Swedish language. This spring, the country's national encyclopedia introduced the pronoun hen, a gender-neutral alternative to the Swedish he and she. And this month, an article in the New York Times featured a preschool where all students, regardless of gender, are referred to as friend and encouraged to play across the gender divide, boys with dolls and girls with action figures. Critics call the measures feminist mind control and warn about possible psychological damage. So, Panos, I hope it's not rude of me to mention the fact that you have an accent. Can you tell us where you're from? I'm from Greece. So tell us, would measures like this fly in Greece? No way. Why not? It's we have other problems right now, okay. <laughs> and I'm really happy for Sweden that mm -hmm. uh, this is the problem that they they are concerned with. Okay, so let me turn to you then, Laura. Where are you from? Uh, I'm from Massachusetts. Actually. Ah, you're from Massachusetts. Would this fly in a, a good blue state like Massachusetts? Uh, I think you could start a few schools that kindergartens with this approach. Um, there are certainly a lot of experimental schools in Massachusetts uh, for young students. I don't know what the public reaction would be, but I think people would be okay with a few schools. If you tried to mandate it, of course, I don't think that would go over well. But how about you, Nick? Where are you from? I'm from New Hampshire, and it wouldn't fly in the rock-ribbed red state of New Hampshire. Even though it's live free or die, I guess this isn't live free. Uh, live free or die means live free and die as a man or a woman like God made you. That's what that means. But I mean, so really the question is, uh, you know, critics call this feminist mind control. Is this mind control or is this really just trying, is this an attempt to free children from the established mind control, right? Which, which slots humans into the male category or the female category, right? What do you think? Right. So uh, I think there was this book like Pink Brain, uh, Blue Brain, uh, discussing the difference between, that the, the difference in the, in the human brain is like very, very small when like, it's still like children, which is, which I, be I believe, yeah, there's like, we grow up in stereotypes, there's a lot of like influence we get from society and culture and things like that. Um, however, I think it's it's best to, res to acknowledge the differences that's there and like to respect them instead of just ignoring them hmm. because you have differences, like we have differences and this is, this so do you is think that this can... program is trying to get rid of the differences or to level the playing field and, and allow the differences that are there naturally to emerge without suggesting what yeah, those differences actually are? Actually, I was confused about that. Um, what's, what's the goal of this? So if the goal is to level the field and, and like try to have like these equal opportunities for, for men and women, that's, I'm perfectly fine with it. If it's about eliminating the differences between the, the two genders and having like a gender agnostic kind of attitude, I think this is hmm. this is not. My understanding, at least, was that, um, at least in the article that I read, they talked about how they studied uh, the preschool teachers and noticed that they interacted very differently with the students. For example, if a boy would cry, they would only comfort him for a few minutes and say, you know, it'll be fine. And if a girl would cry, they would spend a lot longer. Hmm. And yeah. that perhaps those sort of behaviors, when you associate them with language and when you assume that you're going to deal with students in a different way, depending on their gender, you reinforce behaviors that may not be innate. And so my understanding was that they were trying to eliminate that by eliminating the suggestion that, you know, there is an intrinsic difference, but not necessarily change the way people naturally behave, just to eliminate that. Well, so let me ask, how aware were you two as preschoolers of sexual difference? I was not. Not at all? Yeah. No? No? I remember playing with a, a dump truck, a little yellow dump truck when I was in preschool. And I remember thinking that I, even when I was four, thinking that I was cool because I was a girl and I was playing with a truck. 
I don't know what that means, but I think it means I was aware that that somehow wasn't the natural state. I think it means, like Sweden, you as a preschooler were at the vanguard of humanity. (laughs) Congratulations. So that about brings us to the end of the time we have. But Panos, Stulis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Laura Janti, thank you. Thank you, Nick. So Veritalk is produced by James Brandt, and our guardian protector is Barry Walsh. We'd love to hear your comments, questions, gripes, or suggestions for future guests. You can reach us at veritalk at gmail.com or find us at facebook.com slash veritalk. You can also find me on Twitter at at Nicholas Nardini. And from all of us at Veritalk, thanks for listening. <laughs>